Well, this morning we are starting a brand new series. Uh, it's called Fight the Good Fight. And don't worry, it's uh, going to be a, a little bit of spiritual warfare, but a lot of perseverance. Uh, some messages about perseverance and uh, hopefully hearing uh, some things that God wants you to hear and learning some things, particularly through the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, we're going to be focusing on him over the next few weeks this summer. And so uh, this morning, we're going to really start off with the end of Paul's life and kind of backtrack a little bit. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And uh, we'll pray real quick. Heavenly Father, as we go to your word now, we ask that you would open up our minds, open up our hearts to receive what you have for us. God, worship has not ended. We are still worshiping you now by digging into the word of God and getting fed by the Holy Spirit. You use this word to transform us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. It was the year A.D. 65, not quite 2,000 years ago, where the Apostle Paul found himself in prison. Doesn't matter what scholars you read, whether this was the second time or the third time or the 15th time that Paul was in prison, this time was the last time. He was within a few days of his execution. Uh, he was executed as a Roman citizen, which simply meant they cut his head off. Not too pretty either, but better than crucifixion, I guess. <clears throat> and Paul is about to write to one of his young uh, pastors in training, Timothy, sort of his final words. I really always read Second Timothy with a sense of this is a man who is writing this letter, and he, he knows, he's almost done. He's days away from leaving this earth. What is that man going to say to his spiritual son in the faith? And that is really what Second Timothy gives us. He kind of writes a summary of his life, and then he essentially writes his own epitaph. He, he writes his own, the words that you would put on a tombstone. I remember growing up in Michigan uh, in the 1980s, the developments of Detroit, the city I lived in, they spread out faster than they could clear the old, the old little towns, right? Michigan at one point was just a collection of, other than Detroit obviously, a collection of little towns, little farming towns, little mining towns, little fishing towns. There are all these little towns. Well, uh, the neighborhood that we lived in was not on the outskirts of Detroit. It was actually quite within it, but there were still undeveloped sections even within it. And right next to our neighborhood were these woods. And it's as if time forgot this old town called Prestonville, Michigan. And it was there in the 80s. It was still there. A schoolhouse was there. And there was some rudimentary, like, I don't know, wagons falling apart and decaying and all that. It wasn't quite a ghost town. I'm sure whoever owned it sold it, but nobody ever cleared it. The freaky thing was, was still in the woods. Trees had grown up around it. Remember, this is, we're talking about the 1860s that this town existed in. So now the trees are probably 200 feet high, 100 feet high at least. But there are graves. There's cemeteries. The cemetery is now in the woods. So me... And my friends, we used to, you know, that used to be like a fun place to hang out. Don't get any images of me. Don't freak out. I wasn't, you know, I didn't, didn't go out there on Halloween or anything like that. But, I mean, it was cool. Come on. When you see a gravestone and the birth date is like 1831, you're going, whoa, what a trip, you know? 1831. 
And of course, unfortunately, you'd see some of the deaths. Uh, well, ever actually, everybody died who was in there, obviously. And so, so you'd see the death date, you know, 1860-something, you know. And, and we, I was always very respectful. I mean, I'd go in there, and I would just love to read what was on the tombstones. Now, here's the thing. In 19th century tombstones, they did them by hand, right? So did they, did they carve a lot of words in there? No. You know, we always see, like, in the movies, here lies, da, 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 da. there's almost like a paragraph on the tombstone. Let me tell you this. It, I think in those days, uh, you know, carving into a tombstone was pretty difficult. So they would carve two or three, four words, enough to get the dates in there and the birthdays, father, son, blah, blah, blah. But there was no paragraph like you see today. You see a modern tombstone. I mean, they can laser engrave a whole paragraph of your life onto the tombstone. They didn't back then. And so one time, I remember, you know, we, we got in a little bit of a scuffle because one of, one of our doopy friends was trying to chisel a W and O in front. You know, it says, here lies a man. Well, he's being an idiot, and he's trying to chisel in a W-O, and he thought that would be funny. And so we're all hanging out, and what, what's he doing? He's got a little, you know, screwdriver. He's trying to chisel in, here lies a woman, you know. And so... You know, we, we find him and we like pull him up. How could you do that? Da, da, da. And we looked. And it, here enough, it was, here lies a man. And that was it. And it had the date. It was like 1869 or something like that. You could barely read it because the rain eroded it. We had a discussion. What would you put on there? If we were to let this idiot go and he would have chiseled away about us, what would he write? on that little stone that marks and summarizes his life. Well, I don't know about you, but you don't have to go very far to look to see that Paul actually writes exactly what would be appropriate if they did tombstones in his day. Where if you go in 2 Timothy, what is it again, 2 Timothy 4, I said 2, 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8, you can just kind of get there for a moment, where Paul essentially says this, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Life on earth, let's face it, it's a lot more like a fight (laughs) than it is a vacation. God didn't make it that way. We did. And even though when we have times of peace and we're not fighting each other, we're often fighting dark forces that we cannot see, or natural elements affected by sin's curse. Life on earth in many ways is not for the faint of heart. That's why Paul begins his final words with, I have fought the good fight. There was a professor at a Christian college a few years ago, and he, along with his son, he took a sabbatical, and he did, went on a 1,000-mile backpacking trip. He hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, which uh, is, began in Canada, or the border of Canada, and he walked all the way down into S- Southern California nearly to Mexico. I think it ends right before Mexico. And so he went on this thousand, a little more than a thousand mile backpacking trip with his son. I don't know about you, but that's, that's intense. Often they were alone on the trail. They were often cap- camping above 10,000 feet where the air was thinner. And they faced every sort of discouragement you could imagine on such an intense hike. They got low on food and water. There was danger from wild animals, dangers from 
from bandits, still bandits out there. There's danger from illegal growers who are usually in line with the bandits. There's days of rain and mud, incredible physical exhaustion, the very real possible of physical I- possibility of physical injury without any hospitals or doctors nearby, not to speak of the blisters or the mosquitoes and the extremes of the heat and cold. Here's the kicker. They knew that this was going to be a tough hike. They knew that they were going to face discouragement, and yet they did it anyway. Now, before leaving on the trip, the professor discovered that 90% of the hikers who attempt to make this hike never make it beyond 500 miles. In fact, he said 50% never even get started. 40% quit within 100 miles. Only 10% of the hikers who start out ever finish the complete Pacific Crest Trail in the western United States. So he decided, being a professor, he wanted to study what was it about the 10% that succeeded that would help him on the hike. He thought, what equipment did they have? Uh, What training did they go through? What kind of shape were they in? Were they big men? Were they skinny men? What, what, what sorts of things could he find that was common among all of them that would make them successful to make this 1,000-mile hike? And he discovered that those who succeeded versus those who failed understood that the biggest challenge was not your training or your equipment. The biggest challenge in making the hike was mental. It was all right here. They knew that the real enemy that would cause them to quit lay within. Not the elements without, but the struggle within. And this is what I think Paul meant when he said, I fought the good fight. Because for you and I, this is often where we fight the fight. We fight the fight in here. We fight the fight in here. We want to think it's all the elements. Oh, well, if this happened, or if I had this, or if I had this, if I had more money, if I had more love, if I had more people, if I had more... We, we want to blame it on a lot of things that are outside of us. But the biggest fight that we will ever face is often in our minds and in our hearts. Just like this professor found out with the thousand-mile hike. Those who had succeeded the hike they made two decisions that this professor documented. The first one was this. They had decided they will finish the trip no matter what. In other words, quitting was not an option. Quitting was just simply not an option. Even if they needed to have two knee replacements and two hip replacements, they would not quit the hike. That was the first decision they had made, and that was the biggest battle in their mind. They would not stray from the commitment to not quit. The second thing he noticed in their journals and in their debriefs, all 10% of them expected bad things to happen. They expected setbacks. They expected things to go wrong. They didn't think the hike was going to be, you know, some sort of easy walk in the park. They expected trial. They expected adversity. They expected discouragement. They expected problems to arise. And they had decided beforehand, we won't be surprised when something goes wrong. 
nor will we be dismayed. So when the rains turned the trail into muddy ruts, they didn't quit because they expected muddy ruts. And the black clouds of mosquitoes descended upon them like an Old Testament plague. They didn't quit because they were not surprised that there would be mosquitoes in certain parts of the trip. When they faced days of loneliness and nights filled with hunger, they didn't quit because they knew it would be like this. And this was the Apostle Paul's approach to the Christian life. I think that's why his final words here are, I fought the good fight. No matter what happened to him, he kept moving forward step by step by the grace of God. Our problem is, our problem is, we often want to foresee everything that's going to happen on the hike of life, right? The thing that bugs us the most is, especially as Americans, we want to mitigate every risk and prepare for everything that might happen. And we spend so much time doing so that when something happens that is unexpected or something happens that we are not prepared for, who's the first person we get mad at? Right? And why do we get mad at him? Because he knew all along it was going to happen. In fact, sometimes I think he creates for them to happen because he wants to remind us You don't need to trust in your risk mitigation. You need to trust in the Holy Spirit. Whether you see it coming or not. I am the one who sees you through the good fight. I am the one who helps you finish the race. I am the one you're keeping the faith in. Not in of yourself. But in the Spirit of God within you. As modern Americans, of course, we build our society almost on the exact opposite of faith. We look at people as irresponsible if they attempt to live life like a Pacific Crest hike. Faith is often good for the movies, but if you were really to think about faith, you can find it is quite irresponsible to base your life on. It is foolish. It is for quacks and crazy. It is for those people, you know, those who gamble their future on a God they cannot even see and on a heaven that they've never been to? And I'll tell you this right now, I am so proud to be one of those people. This is why Paul wasn't deterred by opposition because he knew it was coming. And you may say, well, how did Paul know that it was coming? Because if you know anything about Paul's life, you know this, he was not always a Christian. In fact, He was the greatest persecutor of Christians in the very beginning. He dragged them out of homes. He dragged them to prison. He oversaw Stephen, the first martyr, killed and executed right in front of him, right at his feet. Paul knew exactly what he was getting into when he got into the Christian life, and he knew it was not going to be a cakewalk. So one of the encouragements I have for you this morning is rather than being surprised by trouble, rather than being surprised when something comes you couldn't plan for, you couldn't mitigate, and there are still things in this life where no amount of money can fix the problem. When you face that, rather than being surprised or angry or blaming God, just know, It's a part of the good fight, the fight of faith that God has called us all to. And no matter what you're facing, God is able 
ready and capable to see you through it. Sometimes to victory and longer life. Sometimes he's calling us home. Either way, we win. Amen? And so, today is the day of struggle. Today is the day of combat. Today is the day of warfare. Now, some of you may say, man, you know, my marriage, we got combat every day. That's not the kind of combat I'm talking about. Man, I go to work, I got combat every day. That's not the combat I'm talking about. Okay? I'm not talking about if your life is full of fights, then you're living the good fight of faith. That's not the, those are often not the good fights. Those are the bad fights. Notice Paul did not say, I fought the bad fights and thank God he forgives me. Don't let that be the end of your life. Because the bad fights are usually when we're angry and we're grumpy and we're selfish and we're all those things. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying, I fought the good fight. The fight that's here and here. Because two seconds after you die and you're in heaven, you will not have any fight here anymore, ever again. You will not have any fight here anymore, ever again. That's the fight that goes away. Gone forever. Let's go ahead and read this scripture real quick. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 to 8, he says, for I am already poured out like a drink offering. Many of you may, Paul was well versed in the Jewish sacrificial system. And, and at one point in the Jewish sacrificial system, they, they pour out the liquids from the sacrifice. Uh, and they, they, some, you know, some of those liquids might be things you don't consume, like blood. Others could be in the form of grapes, in the form of wine. But the, the point is the drink offering was joyful and celebratory. So what is Paul saying? In joyful celebration, I am coming to the end of my life. That's, that's how you could reword that whole sentence. In joyful celebration, I am at the point now where I'm coming into my life in joy. He says, and the time for my departure is near. He knew it. There was not getting out of this one. I have fought the good fight. Verse 7, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Verse 8, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. That's us. What is Paul saying? After the good fight, you know what happens? The one thing I know each and every one of you would want more than anything. To see the face of Jesus. And to hear, welcome home. Paul said, that's what's coming. And for those who long for his appearing to have that same experience, you're going to get that too. A couple of things. First of all, I fought the good fight means this. Paul lived a disciplined life. Discipline's a word that many of us don't like to hear, but true victory is seldom found without it. It doesn't mean we won't fail at times. We will. What it means is though you may lose battles in this life, you will not lose the war. God will win it in it through you and for you. I fought the good fight is a call to discipline, 
not just giving in to every feeling and every emotion and every ounce of laziness, but fighting that at times so that you can keep your spirit growing and alive. Second thing he said is, I finished my course. Race has a direction. There's a starting line, there's a finish line. You are running to that finish line. There's a direction. Paul had a solid direction in life. Paul didn't say, hey, I live my life doing what I want to do. Or what uh, uh, Abbott and Costello, not Abbott and Costello, uh, Cary, not Cary Grant, uh, Frank Sinatra, thank you. Uh, that wasn't it, I did it my way, right? You know, I did it my way, Frank Sinatra. That was not Paul's motive. In fact, Paul allowed the direction of God to guide his heart all throughout his life. Paul is saying it wasn't easy. It was often hard. And sometimes I wonder if, I could, if I'd make it. But I look back now and see Jesus led me all the way. At the end of a life of faith, you feel as though, and I have heard this. I have, you, you know me, I, I've been there when people are, are, are dying that day. They're going to heaven that day. And they'll often describe it to me like this. I feel like a runner and I'm about to feel that tape on my chest and cross the finish line. That's that feeling you get when you stick with God in a life of faith. And then finally he says, I kept the faith. Paul cared about biblical doctrine. Discipline, direction, and doctrine. Three ways in which Paul fought the good fight. Essentially, doctrine is refusing to compromise no matter what. Even when it would have been easier for Paul to change his message in order to save his life, he didn't. Paul never preached what people wanted to hear. Paul preached what people needed to hear. So if you take your discussion sheet out real quick and flip it over, I've got four points that hopefully will help all of us be able to say just as Paul did, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. And the first one was this. Paul was under God's mercy, not the world's. Paul was under, you ever feel like that? Like you're at the mercy of the world and God can't do anything about it. Oh, well, the economy's tanking. Oh, God can't do anything about that. Oh, well, you know, my boss is closing down the business. I must have to, oh, God can't do anything about that. Oh, my kids are all running astray. Oh, God can't do anything about that. It's amazing how quickly we begin to think, well, you know, God's in heaven and God's good for God, but we're here on earth and we've got to endure this thing called earth until we get to God in heaven. Paul never lived that way. Paul never taught that way. Now, Paul didn't say that God was going to give him a bed of roses every single day on this life. But Paul, Paul also accepted that every trial that came his way was still under the authority and control of God. Even up to the last one when he was beheaded. There is nothing that happens to you where God is at its mercy. Let me say that again. There is nothing that happens to you or in your life where God is at its mercy. You may say, well, what if I go to prison? Read the Bible. God has gotten people out of prison. He's the biggest prison break in the Bible. Paul simply knew that nothing could touch him that did not first come from God. And Paul believed that God had the final word. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians, I think it's 4, we're pressed but not crushed. 
persecuted but not abandoned struck down but not destroyed no matter what discouragement came his way God would have the final word number two Paul felt discouraged but did not give in to discouragement it's all right I know every now and then you're going to get discouraged we are every now and then we're going to say life stinks Every now and then we're going to say stuff. We're going to have moments where we get discouraged. Paul got discouraged. Peter got discouraged. They had moments of discouragement. Paul said, I prayed three times for a discouraging thing to come. There's a difference in experiencing the feeling of discouragement and then giving into it. Oh, well, I guess God doesn't do that. Oh, well, I guess it doesn't work that way. Oh, well, I guess that whole faith thing was just stupid anyway. I don't know why I got involved in it. That's giving in to the discouragement. It's okay to say, God, this is happening and I hate it. Nevertheless, I will not abandon you. You want to take me through the fire? Take me through the fire and you are going with me. And he will. He will. And he is. See, Paul truly believed that everything happened to him was for God's glory. Even chains of a Roman jail could not destroy his faith or shatter his confidence in God. For Paul considered his ultimately to be better than his presently. Paul considered his ultimately to be more important than his present. Presently, we may be discouraged. Ultimately, we will be redeemed. Amen? Number three. Paul built his house upon the rock. I won't go too deep into this because it's going to be another message further down. But Jesus told a story about building your house on the rock or on the sand. When the storm comes, houses built on the sand will wash away. Sand will wash away. Houses built on the rock will stay there. What's essentially Jesus saying, prepare for the storms to come. Paul wasn't surprised when hardship came. Paul wasn't surprised when storms came. He prepared for them. He accepted it. He knew it would come. That's why he anchored his soul on the rock of Jesus. How do we do that? We read the Bible. We come to church every Sunday. We pray morning, noon, and night if we have to. We do all the things God has told us to do that anchors us on the rock so that when the storm comes, yes, it doesn't feel good, but it doesn't shake us. It doesn't take us down. Amen? And finally, number four, Paul expected God's reward. What was the reward? I'll be honest with you. For many years, I thought the reward was the crown of righteousness. I bet you many of you thought that too. For there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, right? We all think, man, Paul was dreaming of a crown being put on. That crown of righteousness, that's cool. That's a reward. I bet you had many diamonds in it. I bet you had gold. I bet you had sapphire. I bet you that crown was worth something. Well, the truth I think Paul could give a rip about a crown. You know what reward Paul wanted the most? It's the same reward that you and I want. It's the same reward that all of us hunger. That there is going to come a day. This side of heaven or the other side? This side of the rapture or the other side? Where you will see Jesus face to face. Paul could care less about a crown. If 
fact, if anything, Paul would have taken that crown and put that crown on the head for who truly is worthy. Paul wanted to see Jesus. He was excited. That's why he said, in joyful celebration, my life is being poured out as a drink offering. The Romans think they're executing me. They don't realize they're sending me into the arms of the man I love the most. The man I can't wait to see. I look back, I was faithful to him. I followed him. Not perfectly. But here I am, days away from dying. And I'm still with him. I fought the good fight here and here. I finished the race. In the process, I kept the faith. He's saying, Lord, if I could just see you, if you were just here right now, if you'd just show me something. When you got to the lowest of the low and you said, you know what, God, nevertheless, I'm going to stick with you. You know the reward I'm talking about. It's the only reward that really matters. Not a mansion in heaven. Not the cattle on a thousand hills. The reward is Jesus. Over there in the youth on Wednesdays, that's what they want the most. I wish I could just see God. I wish I could just get a hug from him. I wish I could just get a hug from Jesus. And I'll tell them, well, well, God's filled me, and as I'm hugging you, that's God hugging you. And they're like, yeah, Tom, that's, that's, that's good. We understand that. But boy, wouldn't it be cool if it was Jesus himself? You know what I say? You're right. Wouldn't it be cool? If you want that moment, stick with him, and you'll get that moment. And in that moment, that's all you'll really want. It's all you'll really need. It's all that'll really matter. Amen? There was a woman who, uh, she was a swimmer. She had swam, was the first female to swim across the English Channel. And so, in order to keep kind of keep pushing herself she decided I'm going to be the first woman to swim from Catalina Island to the shore to I, I don't know what you know what, what's on the other side there but from Catalina Island to Long Beach you know California and so in 1951 she got into the waters at Catalina Island she began swimming but as most of you know on the coast of California what forms a very thick fog layer she was able to do the swim but she never made it she quit because the fog had come in so much she couldn't see where the land was when they finally pulled her in the boat the man who commanded the boat said man it's 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 too bad it's too bad Florence because you're only a half mile away from the shore she said I am yeah Two years later, she tried it again. And mysteriously, another fog bank rose. But this time, she said to the man who was in charge of the boat, which direction is the shore? He said, follow the waves in, they'll take you right in. And this time, she swam and she swam and she swam. 
She still couldn't see the beach, but she never gave up. When she finally crawled on the shore, a newspaper reporter said, what was the difference between this time and the last time? She said, not much. I just knew that at the end, the land would be there. I think that's a good example of our walk with Christ. Sometimes a dense fog can roll in in life. But you keep swimming, you keep going. Because you know at the end of it, Jesus will be there. Jesus will be there. And you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Say, Lord Jesus, help me to fight the good fight, to finish my race, and to keep the faith, to not be surprised when discouragement comes, but to persevere, to keep swimming, keep running, keep witnessing, keep loving all the days of my life. That like Paul, I can say, I fought the fight. I finished my race. And I kept the faith. In Jesus' name, amen.